This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. When gangs of violent armed men are terrorizing your neighborhood, you might want to call the police. But what if the gangs are the police? According to a new podcast, that's what's happened for generations in the L.A. Sheriff's Office. Picking up young men in the park and beating them to a pulp in their trailer parked in the back of the Linwood Station parking lot. Very much what a criminal enterprise engages in, except these people have guns and badges. A tradition of violence coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The gang problem in Southern California has been well-documented across the decades. Organized, violent groups that create their own names, hand signs, tattoos, and initiation rituals that often involve targeting random people and even killing them. And instead of fighting the problem, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department is actually a part of it. According to a new podcast, A Tradition of Violence, it's based on a series of in-depth reports about the department in the nonprofit journalism outlet, Knock LA. Cerise Castle is the reporter behind the series and the host and executive producer of the podcast. Cerise Castle, welcome to A Word. Thank you so much for having me. Before we even get to the substance of the podcast, what is the difference between the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the LAPD? That's a great question. The difference between the two is the Los Angeles Police Department is responsible for policing inside the borders of the city of Los Angeles. There's also a county of Los Angeles, which is about 500 square miles and encapsulates the city of Los Angeles, as well as other smaller cities, unincorporated areas. And the Sheriff's Department is mostly responsible for that. They police the unincorporated areas of Los Angeles County, as well as contract cities, places like West Hollywood, Compton, hire the sheriff's department to perform policing services under a contract. You trace the origins of these issues back to the 1800s, but the first named sheriff's gang that you found was called the Little Red Devils in the 60s. Who were the Little Red Devils and what was their impact on L.A.? How did they start and what were they about? The origin story of the Little Red Devils, I haven't quite been able to uncover yet. What I do know is that by the 1960s, this group was active in the East Los Angeles station, and recruits to the sheriff's department were actually being warned about the gang and being told to not join and to not participate. However, there was no policy adopted to actually enforce that sentiment. So the gang continued to grow unchecked. And by the 1970s, they had a decent amount of people. We know there were at least 47 because a commander at the East Los Angeles station was instructed to make a list of the Little Red Devils after an event called the Chicano Moratorium. The Chicano Moratorium 
was one of the largest demonstrations against the Vietnam War held in East Los Angeles. The participants were mostly Chicano living in the area. It was a march of about 25,000 people through the streets of East Los Angeles to a local park where speakers, dancers, and various other entertainers had gathered to celebrate heritage. Now, as that celebration was going on, sheriff's deputies came into the park and started attacking people, beating people with their nightsticks, firing tear gas, and a journalist, Ruben Salazar, was actually killed in this melee, along with some other people. Now, it's said that as a result of that behavior that day, a logo was established at the East Los Angeles station. This is something called the Fort Apache logo. It is an image of an old-fashioned style riot helmet uh, with a boot underneath it. And around the edges, it says, Siempre una patada en los pantalones, which means always a kick in the ass, and low profile, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference to the sheriff of Los Angeles County's instructions that day to his deputies to keep a low profile. They blatantly disregarded that, ended up brutalizing thousands of people, killing a member of the media, and have now celebrated it in this logo that can be seen on pins, hats, various other forms of merchandise that deputies in East Los Angeles sport today. How do these gangs form within a police department and how do they avoid detection or oversight? Looking back into the early 1980s, when we saw a lot of these gangs forming for the first time, um, 80s, 1990s, generally how they would start is a group of uh, so-called hard-charging deputies that are quick to crack heads first and ask questions later would get off of training and decide, well, we deserve something to commemorate the all the hard work that we've been doing. Let's get a tattoo. Let's establish a gang and get a tattoo, but only allow people that co-sign our style of policing to become a part of this gang and to get the tattoo. Uh, with the Grim Reapers, for example, which was established in Lenox in 1990, there was a group of deputies that had come off of training. They wrote an, a letter inviting specific deputies to join their gang. They circulated this letter amongst the station. Some people declined. Many said yes. They got together at a bar, got really drunk, and got these tattoos. And as the years have gone on, new generations of these gangs are born at different stations. So the inception of them is slightly different. Perhaps it is a you know younger deputy who has been trained by a member of one of these more established deputy gangs, uh, seeing how his training officer has been able to advance through the department quickly with these gang affiliations and deciding, well, why don't I make my own gang? And we saw that with the gang, the Jump Out Boys, with the gang, the Banditos, and so on. In our popular culture, what do you think has been sort of problematic? What is generally missed about sort of the depiction of gangs within law enforcement organizations? I mean, obviously, they're usually, quote unquote, bad guys in these movies or TV shows. But what do you think they miss about the impact of these kind of extra legal organizations being created within what's supposed to be law enforcement? 
One thing that is often missed in our media representation of these police gangs is just the sheer amount of damage that they can do in the course of one shift. I spoke to a deputy recently who explained uh, planting drugs to me. There is actually a term for it. They call it vision. And after talking to this deputy, I've spoken to several people who are incarcerated who have told me, oh, yeah, like, I know several people that never had drugs on them and are now serving 25-year sentences for a tiny rock of cocaine that a sheriff's deputy planted on them. When someone is killed by a sheriff's deputy, that extinguishes one life, and it has this horrible ripple effect on the person's family members, their friends, their intimate community. And even when someone is, you know, beaten, I mean, I don't want to say even when, because that, that is a horrible act in and of itself. Just watching a video that traumatizes people. I recently broke a story about a young man who was brutally beaten by two sheriff's deputies at his place of work, and he was blinded as a result of that beating. That incident has rocked his life, his girlfriend's life. She's 37 weeks pregnant. I know that that incident has already rocked his unborn child's life and will grossly impact that child's future. These are things that are not often taken to account when we look at media representation. You're not often hearing from the voices of the victims and the survivors of this violence. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on a tradition of violence and deputy gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about A Tradition of Violence, a podcast about deputy gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department with journalist Sharice Castle. One of the other interesting things about Los Angeles in general is that it is one of the more diverse cities in America. I've always been inclined to say it's not a melting pot. It's more like thick stew. That also applies to the ranks of sheriff's departments. So you have people of color in these departments. These aren't purely white organizations. Do black and brown people speak up? Do black and brown people participate in equal rates and these sorts of gangs? Like what happens to black men and women um, and, and Asian men and women and Latino men and women who are part of these organizations? Do they join these gangs and, and what do they do when they are part of them? 
yes, I think it's really important to say that someone doesn't need to be white to be an agent of white supremacy. Most of these gangs do have a strong current of white supremacy. Um, That seems to be the common factor in a number of these gangs. And yes, there are several members of color that come to mind. I think probably the most prominent figure is former undersheriff Paul Tanaka. He was a tattooed member of the white supremacist neo-Nazi Vikings deputy gang. And it's alleged that he was able to secure membership by killing another Asian man in a fatal deputy shooting. And it's alleged that this is how members of color are able to get into these gangs by proving themselves by killing a member of their same race. So yes, it does happen. You you do get people from various groups that are historically underrepresented on the sheriff's department buying into these gangs and buying into this culture because it does come with perks. It does come with the direct line to people in power and it does come with a lot of career advancement. I want to ask a bit more about these Linwood Vikings. What did the Linwood Vikings do? Where where did they operate? And what was their specific reign of terror like? What kinds of things were they engaging in? The Linwood Vikings were based in the Linwood Station in the late 1980s, early 1990s, before that station was closed. And really what they participated in was, you know, going out on Friday and Saturday night and just straight up gangbanging, going into people's houses and trashing them for no reason without warrants, picking up young men in the park and beating them to a pulp in their trailer parked in the back of the Linwood Station parking lot, doing drive-by shootings, murdering people. Very much what a criminal enterprise engages in, except these people have guns and badges. Good Lord. You spoke with Carol Watson Uh, She's a civil rights lawyer who sued on behalf of some of the victims of deputy gangs way back in the 90s. Here's a bit of what she had to say about why so few of those cases went to court or succeeded once they got there. Juries in those days didn't believe that the police did anything wrong. Uh, The police are the most adept perjurers that exist. They come into court and they look like Boy Scouts and they look you right in the eye and lie to you. Even after all of these years, with the number of videos and pictures that we've seen of police misconduct, I'm not even talking about since George Floyd, I'm saying since before then, has it become harder for police to lie to the public? Has it become more likely that some of these cases actually go through? Or are we pretty much in the same situation she was talking about? I think that people are much more willing to believe that the police are not truthful, are not performing their job functions appropriately. But at the same time, the system is still very unwilling to hold these people accountable. I'm covering a trial right now in the Los Angeles Superior Court in the criminal court. And I was really surprised, frankly, to see um, the jury pool, which had a number of older white people expressing that they had issues with police, that it may be difficult for them to take the police's word as fact and be impartial. Um, One woman who was an older white woman actually broke down crying, describing 
the interactions that she had with the police over the years and how devastated she felt by their lack of action in several circumstances that she had experienced. In this same trial, I have seen at least three members of the sheriff's department tell one story and then just a few minutes later completely retracted and tell a different story on the stand. They're under oath and what looks to me like perjury doesn't really have a consequence. They're able to get up and leave the courtroom. And that happens all the time. I've witnessed attorneys, um, you know, be intimidated by these sheriff's deputies in the hallways. Some of them have even tried to intimidate me in the hallways. And this stuff gets reported. And so often the response from the court is, oh, they would never do that. They're a police officer when history shows that the reality is quite the opposite. We're going to take a short break and we come back more with Sharice Castle about a tradition of violence, her new podcast about deputy gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with journalist Sharice Castle about a tradition of violence our podcast about the L.A. Sheriff's Department. I-, I was looking at the sovereign sheriff movement, and that's the idea that sheriffs have the ultimate authority, that their authority is higher than the state, higher than the federal government. And it's a national movement that's connected to white nationalist groups and the Make America Great movement. Is that connected to these sheriff gangs in Los Angeles? Are they sort of claiming a ideological constitutional authority to do what they do? Or are they basically like, yeah, we're a gang because we've got badges? Or is there a larger sort of political connection to what they're engaging in? I think that many of the deputy gangs in Los Angeles are doing what they do because they feel like this is the only way to police and this is the way that gets results. I think the idea of um, sovereign sheriffs is something that has been uh more welcomed in by our current sheriff, Alex Villanueva. I've never heard him use that phrase particularly, but I think he's a fantastic example of an embodiment of the idea of a sovereign sheriff. Alex Villanueva has gone after our county board of supervisors multiple times. He said during a press conference that they should be taken out to a shed and beaten into compliance. He was sued by our county CEO for repeatedly 
harassing her. And that case was settled for over $1 million. And the county now has to provide security to that woman for the rest of her life as a result of that harassment. Sheriff Villanueva has also defied six subpoenas at my last count and has refused to comply with them. He says that the subpoenas are, quote, fake, which to me seems very on brand with the Severin Sheriff movement. He's up for re-election soon. And I think we, you know, may see some sort of referendum on those beliefs because the people of Los Angeles, I feel, are not really on board with supporting that type of sentiment. Is there any real oversight of the sheriff's department in greater Los Angeles? Does it rely on the mayor? Does it rely on a crusading member of the city council working with you? Or is it basically a case-by-case basis and they only face oversight when someone actually does something so blatant that it can't be ignored anymore? So we do have several means of oversight. Um, The first of which is the Civilian Oversight Commission of the Sheriff's Department. They are directly tasked with overseeing the Sheriff's Department, and they do have subpoena power. Uh, The issue is they do not have any mechanisms of enforcement. What they do is they make recommendations, and it's up to the Sheriff's Department to decide whether or not they adopt those recommendations. The Sheriff himself oversaw a raid on one of the members of the Civilian Oversight Commission's homes and office, So that tells you just a little bit about how he feels about oversight and the commission members um, personally. Needless to say, none of those recommendations, to my knowledge, have been adopted. We also have an inspector general whose job it is to monitor the sheriff's department and create various auditing reports that are released throughout the year, uh, looking at policies and practices within the department. And he also makes recommendations. This year, he made over 107 were adopted by the sheriff's department in total. So yes, we do have oversight. The oversight doesn't really have any teeth. So it exists, but there really isn't anything there to make the sheriff's department actually comply with the oversight. I want to go a little bit back to your origin, because I think a lot of people who listen They don't understand what leads people to doing this kind of work. And I always think that's really important. You know, what drives us to research what we research? What drives someone like you to take the risks that you're taking? You said you started this reporting after you were shot at a protest where you were reporting on what happened after George Floyd. Tell us a little bit about that and how you've been treated since. This story has always been something that I was curious about and interested in. I grew up here in the L.A. area, and I heard about deputy gangs from the time I was a small child all the way through to current times. And I always wanted to know more. There was never any anthology or history book on deputy gangs. And I looked really hard for it, but it just didn't exist. So in 2020, I was working for a local radio station and I was out covering the protests that had broken out in response to the murder of George Floyd. And yes, while I was out doing my job, I watched police officers in riot gear roll into an intersection, make no call for dispersal, and start firing indiscriminately into the crowd. My training as a journalist up to that point was to identify myself as press and make my way toward the police line to try to contact a sergeant or 
someone who was commanding in the field or something to get to safety. And in my attempt to do that, I watched a police officer turn, make eye contact with me and shoot at me. And it hit me and the resulting injuries put me on bed rest for several months. Um, I was in a cast. I The doctor told me not to leave the couch. And I just really did not feel right as a journalist, as a black queer woman at that point in time, just sitting back and not doing anything. And a couple of days after I was shot, a 18-year-old by the name of Andres Guardado was killed in the Gardena area. And it came out within a few days of him being killed that the deputies who killed him were trying to become members of a deputy gang. And when I heard that, I just thought to myself, wow, this deputy gang issue again has come up. It's time for me to start researching. And that's something I can do from my couch and not break doctor's orders. So I started researching it and I haven't stopped for the past two years. It's a story that I think needed to be told 50 years ago. I think I have a good idea of why the story wasn't told until now. I'm really grateful that the community has been so trusting of me and my reporting and comfortable enough to share these really horrific experiences in detail with me because it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And yeah, it's it's completely changed my life. It's, you know, put me in sort of a dangerous position as far as my work is concerned. The sheriff takes pot shots at me every other day and calls my credibility into question, which can be a death sentence for a journalist. But at the same time, I, I really don't think anything would ever take me off of this story because it has been, you know, so underreported for so long. And I, I really don't feel comfortable walking away until something is done about it. Is there any thought that what you're reporting on is going to get any better with the Sheriff's Department in Los Angeles? It's a really tough question. When I first started doing this reporting, my first step was talking to attorneys who have been doing this for longer than I've been alive and asking them, do you think things have gotten better? Do you think this problem will ever be solved? In 50 years, are we still going to be talking about deputy gangs? And unfortunately, the answer that I get is yes. And at the same time, I don't think that should stop people from doing what they do to make a difference. I didn't expect that my series would be, the written series would be received so well. Of course, in like my wildest dreams at night, I I hoped and prayed that someone would read it and open an investigation, something. And that happened, which was incredible. The investigation itself has been completely stonewalled. Um, you have, again, the sheriff defying subpoenas, people refusing to testify for fear of being killed. But the fact that that investigation was opened, that was the first investigation in, in history by county government into this issue, I think that's a step in the right direction. It can be hard to say it's just another brick in the wall, this stuff is going to continue to pile up. But it's those small things like that that make those cracks in those bricks and hopefully can bring that whole system down. Cerise Castle is an investigative reporter in Southern California. A Tradition of Violence, her new podcast about gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department, is out now. Cerise Castle, thanks so much for joining us on Work. Thank you so much for having me. 
And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. 